There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. Desire and Suffering, Buddhism versus Christianity. That's the title of this episode. Why would I choose such a title? Because Buddha's main teaching focused on escape from suffering. When he claimed to experience nirvana, one of the resulting insights was a concept labeled the Four Noble Truths. These succinctly state that number one, life is filled with suffering. Number two, the cause of suffering is desire. Number three, to overcome suffering, therefore we must overcome desire. And number four, this is accomplished through the Noble Eightfold Path. So there you see the connection between desire and suffering. The reason we suffer is because we desire. That's a fundamental principle. And this pattern is overcome by something called the Noble Eightfold Path. What is that? Eight steps that lead a person to this state called nirvana. And they are, number one, right knowledge. Number two, right thought. Number three, right speech. Number four, right conduct. Number five, right livelihood. Number six, right effort. Number seven, right mindfulness. And number eight, right meditation. Is this true? Is this a correct appraisal of the solution to man's dilemma? This list seems very convincing. However, the interpretation of the words used would be much different within a Christian worldview than a Buddhist worldview. For instance, number three is right speech. Well, a Christian would say it's very necessary if you're going to be delivered from the pain and the suffering of being lost spiritually, to confess Jesus as Lord of your life. That would never be found within Buddhist teaching. And yet that's a part of right speech as a Christian, to speak faith, to speak trust, to speak love for God and his commandments. And right meditation, again, is much different between a Christian and Buddhist worldview, because in Buddhism, right meditation means to empty your mind, to still all the thoughts of your mind. But right meditation within a Christian framework means to fill your mind with thoughts as you ponder God's word prayerfully in his presence as you seek understanding. And so it's a completely different approach, even though the words sound very potent and correct, the interpretation of those words is essential if we're going to accept the rightness or wrongness of the belief system. Now, Buddhism teaches that the origin of suffering is ignorance. So the solution is a spiritual awakening of insights that empower us to rise above the suffering. Like the old saying, knowledge is power. But once again, 
knowledge in Buddhism differs greatly than quote-unquote knowledge in Christianity. The fact of human suffering is not an issue, but the origin, cause, and solution of human suffering are issues that demand our attention. First, we must come to grips with the fact that suffering is not always caused by desire. What about victims of disease, crime, natural disasters, betrayal, abuse, political or religious persecution, accidents, or demonic attacks on your life? Of course, those who embrace the Buddhist point of view might submit that the suffering resulting from such situation proceeds from the desire to have a life free from complications problems, disasters, and rejection from others. Those who unfortunately face such situations should therefore react with passive detachment, rising above the suffering. And of course, they must recognize the basic Buddhist tenets of anicca, which means impermanence, the doctrine that nothing has any permanent existence, and anatta, which means no soul, the doctrine that human beings do not have a soul that can live forever in a heavenly sphere. That kind of idea must be given up in order to attain nirvana. Accepting these ideas, therefore, will grant a Buddhist a sense of resignation to the inevitable, a calm acceptance that what will be will be, and nothing can change it. I have often said that Buddhism is a very pessimistic religion, but a Buddhist would probably counter that, no, it's not pessimistic, it's realistic, which, of course, I disagree with, because I do believe there are permanent things. The universe will be recreated, and there will be a permanent new heaven and a permanent new earth, and we do have a soul Jesus taught that soul can have an eternal existence in a heavenly state. And he said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? So that's very much a part of Christian teaching. There is a certain element of truth, however, in this portion of Buddhist doctrine, because far too often those who are caught in negative circumstances allow themselves to feel overwhelmed. Far too often they are crushed and even paralyzed emotionally by their sorrow. Sometimes non-attachment does allow a person to objectively and calmly view his or her situation so that a rational answer can be reached. If you're caught up in the emotion, in the pain of a situation that you're facing, then you can't really calm your mind enough to accept God's answer in the matter. So there is a certain element of detachment that can be good because it allows you to realize that pain is only temporary, so it can be endured. However, non-attachment can also produce non-involvement in situations that plead for action. Instead of resigning over to the inevitable, you've got to step up to the plate and do something about the situation. 
So achieving a place of non-suffering may not necessarily be the complete answer because fighting to gain the answer may involve more suffering. A concise biblical response to these issues is as follows. First of all, the correct view of desire. Desire is something to be avoided within the framework of Buddhism. However, it must be said that legitimate desires are not wrong and should not be purged from our thinking. There is a difference between selfish, ego-driven desire, which ends in death. The Bible calls it lust. Lust, when it's conceived, brings forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. That's the chain of events that is inevitable. So that kind of desire is deadly and very destructive. But godly desire ends in life. The Bible states that God even desires that his people show mercy and not just sacrifice religiously. And during a time of intercession, Jesus prayed over his people and he said, Father, I desire that those whom you have given me be with me where I am. So, if it was not wrong for the Lord Jesus Christ himself to have righteous desires, it's certainly not wrong for us to have righteous desires. So, suffering is not always the result of desire. The scripture does reveal that God casts away the desire of the wicked, but it promises the desire of the righteous will be granted, and that's in Proverbs chapter 10 verse 3 and verse 24. The Most High even assures his covenant people, delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Of course, the key to interpreting that passage correctly is that you must first delight yourself in the Lord and then your desires are in alignment with his desire for you. And so you're not going to be desiring things contrary to his will. You're not going to be desiring things that would place you in a position of rebellion against his word. So that's the fundamental principle. You've got to first delight yourself in the Lord. And then God delights to give you the desires of your heart. Such righteous desires would logically include at times the meeting of natural or material needs, as well as spiritual fulfillment. However, if and when the things do not happen the way we desire, the Bible cautions us also to be content, to be content in times of want and to be content in times of plenty. Our highest desire should be God himself. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness are filled. Well, that's a legitimate desire. And if God is our chief desire, we maintain rest in our relationship with him. Holy desire, passion for God and for truth is a motivation that we all definitely need. Now, what about the correct view of suffering? The goal for a Christian is not to fully escape all suffering just certain kinds of suffering. There are numerous categories of suffering that we are encouraged to avoid, conquer, or rise above. And these types of suffering are primarily the result of internal causes. 
These usually involve wrong thinking patterns that produce wrong behavior. So there is a certain kind of suffering that is avoidable. For instance, number one, suffering that results from being bound to sin. Proverbs 13:15 says the way of a transgressor is hard. Or number two, suffering that results from being under satanic control. Because John chapter 10, verse 10 says Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And certainly that means stealing joy, stealing peace, stealing virtue, stealing calmness of mind and purpose from a person's life. And suffering would result. So that's a kind of suffering that should be avoided. Or suffering that results from being controlled by wrong mental or emotional attitudes. For instance, fear has torment. 1 John 4:18 says or even suffering that results from sickness and disease is something we should fight against not surrender to is something we need to overcome by claiming the promises of God in his word expectation of healing should come when we read bless the lord o my soul who heals all thy diseases psalm 103 all of the above are the result at times of possibly not walking in faith or not claiming God's promises or not obeying his commands, opening ourselves up to things we should not be open to. See, all of these things are battles of the soul that we seek to avoid by fighting the good fight of faith and rising above them. Then there are other kinds of suffering that are inevitable, suffering that we cannot escape. To overcome suffering, well, we should do all things right. And actually, Buddha's Eightfold Path itemizes each area we need to deal with quite well, but we need to apply a biblical interpretation to each one of those statements. Secondly, and most importantly, Above and beyond doing everything right, we as Christians draw from the grace of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, the strength that he promises to us, the strength that a personal and loving God promises to fill our lives with. And none of these things were taught by Buddha because Buddhism is basically atheistic. Our God has pledged to cleanse us from sin, to forgive us, to empower us, and to fill us with his presence and his goodness. As David said, our help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. These things enable us to overcome in a way no one who is of an atheistic mindset could ever overcome, because these are acts of divine intervention, divine aid that assures us that we can win all the more. There are some kinds of suffering, though, that are primarily external and inevitably to be faced in life. Things like trials, tribulations, temptations, demonic attacks, being mistreated by others. Even Jesus, the perfect Son of God, suffered being tempted. He didn't suffer because he had desire to be free from suffering. He suffered because he was attacked by Satan. 
And you and I will be attacked by satanic powers also. And there's a certain element of suffering that goes along with temptation. So it's not a sign of spiritual immaturity to admit it. However, in all these situations, we're encouraged to react with positive attitudes, withdrawing from the world, separating ourselves from sin, a willingness to endure, a heart that rejoices, a spirit that trusts in God, and faith and confidence in his word. We overcome the negative with the positive. And the negative may still be there. The buffeting of the mind and the soul might still be taking place, but we can overcome it with the joy of the Lord within our heart. We rise above it. There's a category of suffering I'd like to end with that actually God urges his people to embrace. Yes, you heard me correctly. There is a category of suffering that God actually urges his people to embrace. Jesus declared that a true disciple must take up his cross daily and follow him. A cross is a complete death to self for the sake of helping others. This involves not passive detachment from a hurting world, but active involvement in sharing the burden of lost humanity and taking to heart God's quest, God's passion, God's vision of bringing this world under his kingdom influence. So such sacrificial service is certainly not going to be an easy road to travel. Sometimes compassion's grip can be quite painful. In fact, Paul admitted, I declare the truth in Christ. I lie not my conscience also bearing me witness that I have continual sorrow in my heart for my brother, my kinsman, according to the flesh. In other words, he was constantly burdened and pained for the lost state of many of his Jewish brethren that did not yet know Jesus as the Messiah. Was that pain wrong? Was it escapable? No, because Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. That burden is feeling the pain of a lost human race. So that's a suffering that God enjoins upon us. That's a suffering that God calls us to. Paul zealously held to that challenge, explaining that one of his deepest desires was to know Christ, know the Messiah in the fellowship of his sufferings. And that's certainly a desire we should all harbor in our hearts as well. That's Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul also forewarned true disciples that it is given to us in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. We can be certain, though, that release from all suffering will take place as soon as we are set free from these physical bodies. And I love the passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 8 that says, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory and the joy that shall be revealed in us. And so even though suffering sometimes is not escapable, it is endurable because we look to the joy that was set before us. In fact, that's a scripture in Hebrews 
that is very encouraging. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He endured his cross. He went through the suffering of it, knowing its value. But he looked to the joy that was set before him. So we're going to be partakers of Christ's sufferings if we are true disciples. The scripture says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, For as much as Christ also has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. It also warns us, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings. That's 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Don't think it's strange concerning fiery trials which are to try you, and don't think that there's a place where you can be free from the pressure of it. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering. It's part of sharing the pain of the cross so that you can also share the glory of the resurrection. That's the way it works. And so here's the title of this episode again, Desire and Suffering, Buddhism versus Christianity. Yes, there's a lot of difference between how these two worldviews approach the central subject of desire and the central subject of suffering. We disagree on a lot of assumptions and presumptions. And I urge you, if you are of a Buddhist mindset, to entertain the idea that you do have a soul that can live forever, that the Messiah can live in that soul, and that he can give you joy unspeakable in the midst of suffering. The answer is not just detaching yourself from the suffering, but attaching yourself to the Savior of the world who died on a cross for the sins of humanity so that he could free us from guilt. Now, a Christian should not be suffering with guilt because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a wonderful thing to know that you are forgiven. That kind of suffering goes out the window when you cancel guilt by accepting the atoning sacrifice that took place on that hill called Golgotha. There's so much more that can be said, and I would urge you to visit my website, thetruelight.net, and look at the article that I've written called, What is the Correct View of Desire and Suffering? And pursue this subject even deeper. I believe you'll find out the Bible contains the answers. And that's where you'll find deliverance. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shreve's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.